Amen, 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 amen. We back in First Peter, y'all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we're, we're two chapters away from completing it, um, line by line and uh, verse uh, by verse. Amen? Amen, amen, amen. And so I'm excited about um, diving back in. You know, usually when it comes to texts like this, if Pastor Deuce wasn't on sabbatical, he would have probably had me on this text. Um, and you'll know why, as we always be going back and forth about which one going to do which one. <laughs> and you'll know why this one is a monster. Oh, it is. Um, but it kind of reminds me, I, I've been, you know, I know as a pastor, people always telling us at conferences and stuff, you, you, need, you, need a, you, need a, you need something to help your mind get away from the hustle and bustle of ministry. You, you need something to help you kind of unwind, relax. You need a hobby. In other words, <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> pastor friend of mine bought me an Xbox 360. And, man, um, I didn't know. I mean, you know, I hadn't gamed in years. You know, I'm, I used to go into the arcade, you know, where it was just a quarter. You know, I mean, c- machines be costing $5. And it get, it's all pretty. You can ski on joints, you know what I'm saying, dance. And it'd be like $5. You know, they try to trick you, getting you to get the tokens, and then they say nine tokens. You'd be like, oh, that's just nine, but you don't realize that's a lot of money. And so, I, you know, I got into gaming, and I, I, I've been, been kind of enjoying gaming, but I hadn't been around home gaming since the first Nintendo. You know, I was going ColecoVision, you know, uh, Atari 2600. You know, y'all don't know about that there. But then, um, you know, and then, when did all of then I got this Xbox 360. Now, y'all don't know, I've been out of the loop. So this thing, you can fight other people online and talk to I'm like, what in the world is going on with this thing? And I remember you could do, you know, you, but, but what's the funniest thing that has been enjoyable about doing this is you can put in codes for stuff. Up, up, down, down, left, right, B, 7, X, left, T, something, you know. And it open, unlock all this stuff for you, you know what I'm saying? And you, and, you know, and, you know, as I was thinking about that, you know, I, I, I was looking at it because, I, you know, I'm a type of dude, I like to work my way through the game without the help of the codes <clears throat> because the codes kind of spoil the process for me. If you get everything on the front end without going through the game, you want to trade your game back into GameStop faster because you like you're bored with the game. And that's what many Christians are like. We want codes to the Christian life. Instead of going through the Christian life like we're supposed to, we wish God had a remote control to detour us around all that it takes to be what he wants us to be. We want to go, we want to push the B button. Um, That means blessing. So we want to press press the B button. We want to press the wife button because we want this. We want to press the hunt. We got all kinds of codes. If God would just give it to us now, um, we would love it to not take the longer route. And so Peter, in this passage today, begins unraveling in chapter 3, the latter part from verses 18 to 22, of what it looks like to have to deal with everything that's a challenge, to go through the entire process of development in a way that reflects the glory of Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is he doesn't call them to live life for their own advantage. It was interesting to me in this. But, but, but he calls them to live life to Christ's advantage. Notice the difference. See, a life where you only benefit is really not a beneficial life. But the, a life that reflects kingdom benefit, that benefits the name of Jesus, is the most powerful life anyone on planet Earth could live. What, what, what Peter does, it, and, and I didn't really notice it, until we started going through this book, is he has a very extensive Christology. Say Christology. Yeah, I I love the way my man Peter um, walks us through the book. And when I got to this passage, which is one of the most difficult passages, if not the most difficult passage in the New Testament. But if you get sidetracked 
by what the passage is not about, you miss out what the passage is actually about. So we're going to dive into some very heavy information, but I don't want you to get bogged down because it's going to have potent application. And, 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 so, and so what's beautiful about Peter is Peter has it read here. He, he writes, he says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Uh oh. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You know, as we look at this passage, I, I want to talk about for a little while living life to Christ's advantage. Living life to Christ's advantage. Peter, like I said, has been doing a beautiful Christology throughout this book. Christology is the theology or systematic theology of studying who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. Who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. In chapter 1, it's beautiful. In, 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 in chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, Peter points us to the quality of Christ's atonement. In, in, in chapter 2, Peter points us to the power of Christ's crucifixion. But here in chapter 3, this latter part, Peter points us to the conquering power of Christ's resurrection. And it's interesting that first he starts with the fact that Jesus is the real deal, number one. Number two, uh, what Jesus, Jesus removes stuff. But then finally, here in this passage, he's going to point us to the fact that Jesus rules. Now, what he's going to do for us is he's going to give us a very extensive biblical theology of the person of Christ that we are supposed to draw strength off of and utilize in a powerful way in every area of our life, but especially in the process of development, in the process of spiritual growth, in the process of going from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity, no matter how young you are, no matter how old you are, this is a process that is extremely important. And in this passage, he points us to Christus Exemplar. Can you say that? Oh, yeah, I like that. That's one of the aspects of atonement. You probably already know what it is. It means Christ our example. And he not only points us to Christus Exemplar, he points us to Christus Victor. Can you say Christus Victor? Oh, y'all going to get with me in a second. That means the victory of Christ. So he points us to Christ, listen, as our example. But see, it's not enough for him to be an example unless you've accepted him as the victor. See, because anybody can put him beside Gandhi and Buddha and all of the other cats that quote-unquote did their thing. But it, so they'll say he's a nice example. But for the Christian, Christ's example is more than just something we look at and mimic. We feast off of him. And when you feast off of him, you're empowered when you look at that example for it to actually count as a good work before the living God. Y'all got to stay with me on this one. <laughs> and, so, and, so, and so Peter goes and he begins <coughs> to lay out kind of the background of the first of verse 17 where he says, because all of this is based on verse 17, he says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if 
that should be God's will than for doing evil. So this whole section that we're diving into is Peter explaining Christus exemplar, explaining that Christ is the ultimate one who suffered for the right reasons. See, many of us, when we get fired for a job, from a job, it's for the wrong reasons. See, when some of us get fired from a job, you know why we get fired for a job? Because we've been tripping. But it's interesting when you get fired from a job and it wasn't your fault, but because you were reflecting Christ's glory in a way of integrity. And so what Paul is trying to line us up with is when you are going through issues in life, make sure it's for the right reasons, not the wrong reasons. All challenges shouldn't be because of Christian uh, 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 with church discipline or, or, or um, God's disciplinary hand, but it should be because the things that come your way because you're a Christian, all who walk godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, remember in this context, and I'm just laying us a backdrop. Remember in this context that these people weren't dealing with massive amounts of persecution, but basically sociological and economic persecution. And so here, as we talk about living life to Christ's advantage, leveraging life to Christ's advantage, my first point is, 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 that, is that a life lived to Christ's advantage must benefit others. A life lived to Christ's advantage must benefit others. Peter says right here, he says, for Christ suffered once for all for sin. Beautiful. Basically what he's saying here is he's pointing to the, the, the cross of Jesus Christ. And he's pointing to the fact, it's in an era, it's pointing to the past, uh, a snapshot. It's like taking a digital camera, taking a snapshot of something and showing people a picture of something that happened in the f past that had great significance. In other words, it was an actual historic event. Stay with me. So he says, he, he says, Christ suffered once for all for sins. But then he takes it further and he says, the righteous for the unrighteous. In other words, what happened with Christ is that Christ took on our guilt. All of us were guilty. Every single one of us was guilty. All of us deserved the crucifixion plus hell. But Jesus, the righteous one who didn't have any issues, who, who never sinned, took on our stuff and died in our place. Now, this doesn't mean much until you remember some of Jesus' statements. Jesus has some statements where he says, I must. I'm always blown away by the I must statements of Jesus. Because the I must statements of Jesus were, were, were his statements where he is deeply driven by the will of the Father, but the needs of others. So what he says, I must suffer many things at the hands of the Pharisees and Sadducees and be delivered up and killed. In other words, he saw that as a mandatory, uh, it, was, it was a mandate for his life that his life was for somebody else. And so Peter, <coughs> Peter wants believers not to become selfish. Even when they're going through stuff that we quote unquote don't deserve to go through. He says, even when you think you don't deserve to go through something, instead of getting into a pity party, remember Jesus' posture while he went through. And Jesus did not let his passion and his mission to the living God get in the way. of it. He didn't let any of his trials and his sufferings get in the way of his ultimate mission. <clears throat> and I'm praying that we would develop that type of mindset. <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about seeing under 40 folk develop a beyond me mentality. 
You know, I was watching one of Tyler Perry's movies, and you know you got to kind of get through some of the stuff. But he actually has some good, some good stuff. I was watching one, and, 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 and I, I, what's, what's her name? Cicely Tyson was in the end. You know, she played Harriet Tubman back in the day, so I, I, she got a big soft spot for me. And what's the other lady that do the, uh, the, the uh, poetry? What's her name? Maya Angelou, yeah. Man, she's so, she's, she trips me out. I say to you, she trips me out. But, you know, Maya Angelou, she do her thing. But it was interesting at the family reunion. It was interesting at the family reunion. And they had, they had, Lever, you know, Gerald LeVert playing family reunion. I like that, John. But he's playing that thing. Family reunion. And so they brought him around. And, and the older women, um, the one of the ladies, she was 97 years old. And they began to exhort the current generation. And they began to give them the history of how they got where they are. And they wanted that rich history. They told them, your, your, grand, your great-grandparents were slaves. And they began to walk them through all of this stuff. And they say, in light of all that they sacrificed for you, you're not living a life that reflects the passion of their sacrifice. And if, and if they exhort them based on our human lineage, how much more should our spiritual lineage in Jesus Christ motivate our lives? As much as people paid for us during slavery, civil rights, whatever times, and even during the Reformation periods, the Great Awakenings, no one paid a price like the Savior. No one paid a price like him to be tortured for hours, not able to get his breath, wheezing, bludgeoned. How much is that legacy having an impact on how we execute our lives? We are to live life to Christ's advantage, and in living life to Christ's advantage, it should benefit others. And it's showing that Jesus Christ, he made him who knew no sin become sin on our behalf. How many of you, for somebody that dogged you out in the past, would do your best to see them redeemed while they're still hating on you? What's beautiful about Peter, and I know that we hear the gospel a lot around here, and it's easy to kind of get used to it. But the text is demanding, based on going line by line, that we zoom in on these things. And so, and so Peter begins, and he continues to go, and he gives the benefit of Jesus' work. <clears throat> he gives the strongest benefit of the work of Jesus living his life to Yahweh's advantage. It says that this, and I, I wish I just had time just to spend on just this section of the verse, it says that he might bring us to God. What a powerful statement. That he may bring you and I to God. Now, some of us don't know what it's like to be brought to God. See, 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 this statement for them was a shocking statement. But for us, because we're in a quote-unquote, there's a church on every corner, there's not anything really special about being brought to God. But when you experience being outside of where God is doing stuff, he said that he may be, I remember the psalmist saying, who can stand on this holy hill? In other words, you can't just walk up in the presence of God like you somebody. When Uzzah tried to go up in there, they tried to tackle Uzzah. And while Uzzah was going in that joint, he went leprosy. Because he thought he can go to God on his own. And, and so who can stand before his holy hill? It, it reminds me uh, of, you know, of, of, you know, when you see Malcolm X, you, that movie, and, and your man um, Denzel Washington was going up in the, in the little spot. And before he go up in there, cats got to frisk him. Frisk him down, make sure he ain't got no gun, make sure he ain't got no knife so that the boss can be taken care of. But see, God don't work like that. God don't need no henchmen. You, you, without Jesus, run up on him if you want to. 
He don't need to frisk you, fam. He already saw you when you put on your clothes and what you got in your pockets. He don't need an X-ray machine like the airport. Matter of fact, he's so powerful that he can disarm you while you're walking into his presence. And you'd be like, what in the world? What just happened? <laughs> in other words, and, 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 and so we see that being brought near to God is something special. We talk about the anointing falling from heaven. Ain't nothing falling from heaven. It ain't coming down. The Holy Ghost is not coming. He's here. See, when you know Jesus Christ as Lord, see, these are the benefits of what Jesus did for us to enjoy the Christian life. He's brought us near to God. You know the song we sing? Brings us near to God. What does nearness to God mean? I'm glad you asked. In Jesus' prayer, in John 17, verse 3, he said, this is eternal life. That you know God the Father and Jesus Christ, his only son, who sent him. Stay with me. All of this is going somewhere. In other words, a relationship with God, people, is not him being an eternal cash register. Being in a relationship with God is not getting him, getting his stuff without getting him. That's called a sugar daddy. <clears throat> Being in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ is a relationship. It's not a pimping relationship. I know you see the pimps that have their cups and have all their rubies. And No, we're not pimping God like he's our prostitute. God brought, God bought you with a price so that you can hang out with him. <clears throat> now some, for some of us, that ain't enough. For some of us, that ain't enough. But that's the benefit of what it means to become a Christian. In other words, it's, it's, it's answered prayer, even when you're frustrated. <clears throat> it, it, it's, 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 it's understanding when God doesn't bless you, you're actually being blessed. See when, you, see, see, when you don't know somebody and you try to do stuff together, it don't feel right. But when it's a relationship, you will endure things in a relationship that you wouldn't normally endure. Why? Because it's a relationship. And so when we're brought near to God, Jesus made the way for us to go into the eternal holy place and to hang out with the ruler. So when he brings us near uh, to God, he calls it several things. Jesus, <coughs> in John 10, calls it the sheepfold. This is the place where believers hang out with God. When we're brought near to God, Jesus says, I am the door to the sheepfold. In Ephesians 2.15, he calls it the one new man. He didn't call it the black church. He didn't call it the white church. He didn't call it the American church. He called it the one new man. So everybody that's in a relationship with Jesus Christ are not separated by ethnic or generational lines, but they have Christ in common, benefits of being in a relationship with him. And the writer of Hebrews calls this sphere the holy places, being brought near, near to God. But it's interesting that Peter is not just talking about nearness of God and just nearness to his person, but it's also nearness to his practices. Because he wants us to have biblical kingdom ethics. Can you say that? Biblical kingdom ethics. Yeah. Now the next section of this, it says that he might bring us near to God, bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Um, <clears throat> what it means here, just real, real, real simple, is not talking about um, Jesus being fleshly. It's talking about <clears throat> being uh, put to death in the flesh. It's just talking about him dying. But, but, it, but the main idea of it is, is, is not talking about Jesus' nature. It's talking about his mode of existence. So Jesus died 
in an earthly sphere. But then it says, but made alive in the spirit, he's, he's put in a, a heavenly or eternal sphere. So now, we talk, when we talk about being put to death in the flesh, it means limitations, the ability to suffer, and the ability to die. That's what he subjected himself to. He laid aside the privileges of his deity. A good friend of mine said he paused the wealth, put in appended use of his attributes on the shelf. I like that. But then be made alive in the spirit means without limitations of his incarnation and the vulnerability of the incarnation, but with power and with new life. So Jesus Christ who left his heavenly abode when he died, was made alive in the spirit. That doesn't mean he was born again spiritually because he didn't need to be born again because his spirit was not cluttered like ours is. And so he was retaken into his heavenly sphere. But then it goes forth. I told you it's going to be a little thick. He says, in, in, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Oh, boy. This is a very um, debated verse, and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Amen? Amen. I know if it was covenant community, I'd have everybody with their hands up asking questions. But I'm, I'm going, I want you to check because I don't want us to miss, miss what this passage is saying, getting bogged down to this. Because with all the different interpretations of this verse, <coughs> it still doesn't change the thrust of how Peter is using it. So it's just what you believe the spirits are. So... I'm going to take a stab at it. Y'all ready? <laughs> Made alive in the spirit. Okay. And then he goes down and says he went. Um, it says here in, in, uh, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. <laughs> so a lot of people believe that Jesus, some people believe the her heretical doctrine that Jesus went to hell and suffered for us. That means that the cross wasn't sufficient if he had to still suffer after he died. That's why he said, Tetelestai, it's finished. Okay? Um, everybody wants to kind of speculate about what happened in between um, that time. You know, the Mormons would say that during that period and afterwards he hung out with people and visited the Indians in America and all kinds of stuff like that. Everybody got their take on this verse. But it's interesting. He said he, he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. I'm going to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. I'm just going to use the Bible. Not no extra, extraordinary extra activity. Just real simple. The word, I did the word spirits, and all of this is going to make sense. The word spirits is never used of humans. Never. It's one usage in Hebrews, but it's to humans that aren't even alive. But, it, but, but most of the time when it talks about spirits, it's talking about supernatural beings. And so when he said he proclaimed to the spirits in prison, um, get your Bibles out. <coughs> Several places that I want to go. First, we want to go to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, <clears throat> false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. This is the scariest passage in the Bible to me. This joint is scary. It says, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth has been blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not sleep. That means God has rustled up a belt that nobody can move out the way of. <laughs> Verse 4. It says, for if God 
did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains. Wow. See the spirits in prison? See the idea of chains here. Linking the words of captivity and letting you know that they're in hell, but it's a different, I don't, I'm not going to go into all the compartments of hell. Somebody talking about this, levels of hell. But there is a, is, is a special place for a group of angels that fell. Now, these angels that he's talking about are different than the angels that fell with Satan based on Revelation chapter 12, 7. And I'll show it to you. Jude. Turn to the book of Jude. It's right before Revelation. Don't have no chapters, it's just verses. Jude 6. And it says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. <clears throat> so these people that Peter is talking about, he's talking about the spirits. These spirits are angelic beings. Now, that points us back to when did this happen? In some way, shape, or form, they were disobedient in Genesis chapter 6. Stay with me, y'all. Y'all looking at me like, oh my God. But, but I got to explain this so that we can get some clarity. G Genesis chapter 6 is, of course, where there was some jacked up relations between the sons of God and the sons of men. Okay? Now, I'm not sure. Now, this is where, see, this is where we need to be silent where the Bible's silent and speak where the Bible speaks. The text never said that the sons of God became flesh and had intercourse with the daughters of men. It didn't say whether they entered them. All we know that there was some type of edict that God gave to angels and something that they were supposed to do that they didn't do. And the father got so mad, God, the father, God, the son, God, the spirit got so mad that they immediately removed them from heaven and put them in hell. Uh, Matthew 25, 41 says that the hell was not made for humans. It was made for the devil and his what? Angels. So he placed them in eternal chains. Now, the reason why I know biblically that this is different, because when you go over to Revelation 12, verse 7, go over there with me. Revelation 12, 7. It says, and the great drag. Oh, let me, let me go. I like this part because I like some good Bible fighting. Some good Bible fighting. When I get a chance to preach on fighting, I like to. He says, <laughs> he says now, he says now, verse 7, he says, now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated and there was no longer a, any place for them in heaven. Now, heaven is a huge place. Now, the devil and his angels running around heaven like our angel, I don't know if they were on horses. I don't know what was going on, but they were getting housed. And so what happened was, is he said, man, we, we, we need an exit door or something. And so God was even merciful to Satan. By, he said, and the great dragon was thrown down. That, so he didn't allow him to continue getting a beaten, but he threw him down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. How do I know that's different? Because there's a group of angels that because of their sin was automatically put into chains and there were those who were just thrown down to earth. Now we don't know when that happened, but how do I know the, these things? Because the text is telling us this. But then I don't have time, but First Timothy chapter 5 verse 21, write it down lets us know that there are elect angels and non-elect angels. Angels who uh, uh, sinned and got kicked out of heaven or put in chains. And so what he's doing here, let's go back to 1 Peter and let's key it into the passage. 
<coughs> so that we can have context. But I wanted, I didn't want to just run through that because you would have been asking yourself all of those questions through the rest of the sermon. <coughs> and so he said, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, the question is, what did Jesus proclaim? I don't know. See, some people talking about he preached a revival. No, 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 ain't no coming back after that. Lazarus was like, please, man, send somebody up there. It's hot in the mug down this joint. And he's like, well, they have Moses. They have the prophets. They have all they need. So ain't no coming back after hell. There's nobody partying in hell. There's no, it's not a meeting of friends and enjoyment. Hell is hell. Somebody going to get that on the way home. And so, and so, your, and so your man, your, your, your man Peter begins to talk about the fact that Jesus in some way vindicated himself. When Jesus died, I don't know what it looked like. I don't know if he was glowing when his spirit, I don't know how, I don't know how it worked. But in some way, shape or form, I don't know if Jesus said something or his mere presence was a proclamation. But it said he proclaimed to the spirits in prison and he looked at them like, see, told you, you should have stayed down with your boy. Now, remember the jokers that were scared of Jesus when he was trying to kick. Remember, they said, they said, man, it ain't our time yet. And Jesus let them go into the pit because everybody knew that Jesus was going to come wreck shop. But, but, but what, what does it mean in this context? He's talking about the fact and he's going to continue to do it throughout the passage that when you live life to Christ's advantage, just as Christ lived his life to the Father's advantage, God will vindicate you before your enemies. He said, don't be mad when people hate on you. Because God is so beasty that if you allow yourself to be fronted on for a season, if you wait on God to vindicate, he can vindicate you better than you can vindicate yourself. Some of y'all have been bumping your gums to people for a long time and it still hasn't been working. It's because you've been trying to vindicate yourself. But when you look, when you live life to Christ's advantage, I wish somebody would hear me. Christ will fight for you. And I'm telling you, he's a better boxer than you. He's a better wrestler than you. He knows more spiritual kung fu, taekwondo, and all of that than you. But if you would sit down, shut your mouth, wait on him, he'll do it better than you ever could do. He can put people in arm locks, head locks, break jaws. But you got to let him do his work. <laughs> but the key to this passage is it shows that Jesus allowed himself for a season to be fronted on. He didn't mind. And what's beautiful about this passage is it shows how much Jesus had a strong sense of who he was. And many of us in Christ don't have a strong sense of who we are in him. We have a strong sense of who we were without him. And because of that, that's why some of y'all are depressed all the time. Because you are meditating on who you were without him. That's why John, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you were once. And in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, you were once far off, but you have been. See, many of us are meditating on where we were. And we're coveting where other people are, but not knowing where he has us right now. Some of you are in the best position of your life, broke, a meal ticket in your pocket, and some keys and a bus token. And you in the best place of your life. Know why? Because you're near to God even though you're not near to his stuff. See, some of y'all equate God's stuff with him, and that's why you're depressed. And God is not, see, Jesus on the cross, I don't see how he was able to even talk. I'd have been tripping. Oh, 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 God. I'd have been just tore up. 
I mean, I'd have, I'd have probably died when they put the first nail there. I'd have passed off. <laughs> Why not just held my breath until I just, until just gave it to God? <laughs> I'd have been purple. I'd say, I, ain't, I don't want no more nail. A nail in your wrist? And he did that <clears throat> so that we could be brought near to God. And so he can be an example <clears throat> of what it looks like to stay the course. Some of you today just need to know, stay the course. Stay the course. Being a Christian is a challenge. It's a promise. But stay the course. And God, in it, that's why the Bible says anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will not be disappointed. And so Jesus went to his enemies, and he was able to front on his enemies because they fronted on him. But it was righteous fronting. Don't you start going out this week fronting on people. Just keep walking with Jesus. But then he gives the example of what he's trying to lay out, and this is beautiful. I'm glad we got good time today. We're making good time. <laughs> Can I keep preaching? He says in verse, he says in verse 20, he says, he says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. <clears throat> That's when Noah was building the ark. That's why it corresponds really well to 2 uh, to, to Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. And, and it's because it uses the same example. It says, when God's patience waited in the day of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. So there was a time period in between that where God was giving his angels and people the opportunity to properly function in this time of wickedness. And he's talking about the wickedness of Noah's times corresponding with the wickedness of our times and their times in the Bible and what it looks like to function faithfully in the midst of wickedness. And he says, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought through water. So you see the judgment of God coming and bringing the waters and raising up the ark while those who didn't walk with the living God were washed away. And when that happened is when these cats were put in chains. And so it says here, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Interesting. A lot of people have badly used this verse to teach baptismal regeneration. Now, let me, I got to explain that. Some of y'all say, but the what? Baptismal regeneration. That means they made physical baptism a meritorious work. What does that mean? In other words, when you get physically baptized, it, uh, it causes you to be born again. Right? Wrong answer. Because you got to read the whole verse. Now let's lay it out. Now I want to I talk a little bit about baptism and what it is before I, before I move on. The word baptize means to dip. That's why, that's why we, 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 we finna get a baptismal. And if you're going to get dipped, those who, and we're going to talk about all of that, and we're going to talk about what it means. But, but we're here, we don't baptize babies. We're, we don't dog others who do. But we baptize people who have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, right? And so, so when we talk about baptism, baptism is the act by which the Holy Spirit places the believer into the body of Christ. We're not, he's not talking about physical baptism here. He's talking about internal baptism that corresponds to physical baptism. But he, he does use double entendre, and I'll explain that in a minute, to talk about how it fleshes out in the Christian's life. And so where do we see that? We see that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. It says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. 
<coughs> so when the Holy, when you trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Titus 3.5 says that the Holy Spirit has a bucket full of the blood of Jesus. And he takes his washcloth and dips it in the blood of Jesus. And as he's, God has given us each faith and the ability to believe, he scrubs our souls off. That's baptism. And he dips, he baptizes us in the blood of Jesus as a sign of us dying with him. He brings us out of the blood of Jesus with the blood still on us. Oh, I wish I had some help. Buried and raised from the grave. Therefore, we participate spiritually in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. <laughs> and it is his work, not ours. And so when he says baptism now saves you, <clears throat> what's beautiful about this is he's saying baptism is not just something that happened in the past, but it's something we should draw nutrients off of. What am I saying about that? <clears throat> not baptism in and of itself, but God's work in baptism and all that baptism represents. Baptism calls you to newness of life. Calls each and every one of us to newness of life. That you died, that you were buried with Christ, and you were raised with Christ. Check out Romans 6. I don't have time to go through it. But it's very important. He says, it now saves you. Some people say that you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Some people say you got to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, that's why it says in the name, not names. So you can do the name of Jesus or Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that's, of course, physical baptism. But this rite, many commentators say, was a rite, when we talk about physical baptism, that corresponds to the, in, the external reality. So what happens is, is the internal working of the Spirit causing us to be born again. Physical baptism is only a sign to the fact that you believe based on Christ and Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, that that internal reality has already happened, and now you're affirming it by publicly proclaiming to the believers that are around you that that has actually happened. In the New Testament church, they would take you through rigorous measures before they would baptize you because they were afraid that people who weren't really Christians would call themselves Christians. Some of y'all got baptized at 12 years old. That's why some of y'all confused about when y'all got saved. Some of y'all at the church, they say, it's time. He's like, it's time. It's time. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. It's time for what? If you grew up in the church, you know what I'm talking about. You're like, it's time for what? To be baptized. I'm like, I, I, I got baptized. I remember they took me in this wooden church, and the baptism was under the thing, and they pulled up the thing. And turn the heaters on. You know, it wasn't a jacuzzi, but, you know, you know, I'm from the hood. I didn't know what a jacuzzi was. Wait a minute. And so I, I, they took me and baptized. And I, but I didn't hear anything about the person of Christ. It's corresponding to anything. So I wasn't saved. So I was singing on the choir. I was an alkalite. I was lighting the candles, putting out the candles, helping the pastor. But I was not a Christian. I did not know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. But I was baptized but didn't understand what it meant. Without spiritual baptism, physical baptism is moot. And so what happens is, is we see believers' baptism all over the place. I do not have time, but I'm going to give you the verses to go through all of them. <coughs> you see believers' baptism in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. It says, after they had believed, they were baptized. Acts chapter 8, verse 12 and 13. Verses 34 through 40. 10, 41. Chapter 16, verse 15. Chapter 16, verse 33. And chapter 18, verse 8. Acts 2, 41. 8, 12 through 13. 8, 34 through 40. 10, 41. 1615, 1633, and 188. And when you look at those passages, you will see that people 
weren't baptized if they didn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We're not talking about John's baptism. And so when we go back to this passage, he's talking about baptism <coughs> now saves you. And so we explained that reality that Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is something that the believer uh, must participate in or that, what, that we, were, we participated in it. But then he says, baptism corresponds to this. Very important. <coughs> in other words, when Noah and, and, and that group of people, when the floods came, that was typified of baptism in Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is, is that in the midst of their generation that was wicked, they received a typological baptism of what they had already believed through their faith, working itself out and building the ark, right? He said the same thing happens in their generation. He said baptism still does the same thing in your life. In other words, the same way God saved them from his wrath is the same way he saves us from his wrath, but it was all because Jesus Christ lived his life to the Father's benefit, therefore benefiting us, calling us, looking back at baptism, spiritual baptism, as a means to fuel us to live life for somebody else. I know that was real complex, but I had to preach the verses. So it's real important for us as believers to not have this chitlin circuit Christianity. I'm talking about the Christianity that people see in plays. We see, we gotta, we, I'm scared of the pictures of Christianity that people get. The preacher always likes somebody on the choir, or he's trying to look at somebody when they walk past. The ladies are always freaks. The dudes are always homongering. If they don't, they don't, I'm, I'm sick of that. I pray, I pray that God would refurbish uh, uh, relocate and redevelop. It's talking about gentrification right here. Our souls need to be regentrified with the power of the gospel so that people in this generation may see gorgeous Christians, people that admit when they're wrong and don't front like they're not and live life for somebody. In other words, we're not always trying to grind for ourselves. Grinding for shine. No, Jesus Christ grind for the shine that only the Father can give. And so when we live life to Christ's advantage, this is what <coughs> this reality brings. And so now saves, and it doesn't just remove dirt. That's what he says in these verses. He says, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. In other words, that you begin, you begin to say, God, I'm right with you, not based on me, but based on your son. And so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that all of this complex theology makes its way into our lives practically. He, he says further, as I close, <coughs> he says, he says, baptism which corresponds to this now saves, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal or a pledge to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how you know this is not baptismal regeneration, because he still points to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the means by which you're saved. This is the part I like, too. It says, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to his feet. What's beautiful is he takes us through the entire work of Christ. He takes us through his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, then finally takes, him, takes us through his ascension. Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father is a sign that Jesus Christ is equal with the Father. Uh, yesterday morning, you know, I'm usually not home on Saturday mornings, but some people knocked on my door yesterday morning. 
And they gave me this thing said awake on the front of it. And I was shaking. Pastor Deuce was over there. We was hanging out. I was shaking. I was just shaking. I said, Lord. I mean, you know, I was just shaking because I was just like, I, I just want to pounce. Ah. You know, but I, I stood back. And he laid the little stuff out, and laid everything out. I asked him, I said, give me an understanding of your faith. I said, well, we, they, we believe in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that he was raised from the dead, that he's powerful, and that he's an eternal being. I said, really? I said, okay. Um, what else do you believe about Jesus Christ? Do you believe he's equal with God? No, we don't believe that. I said, wow. So we went over to Colossians 1, 15. Then they took out their cue cards with their answers, and then they took out, you know, their little book that helps them to answer and, and I said, because, I see, they got a script. And then, 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 then I asked Pastor, I said, can you get my computer? And I pulled out my Libronics, which is a software program. And they began to talk to me about Jesus being firstborn, that he was in eternity, but he was born, that he was a created being by God. And we looked at the word, and I said, well, this word does mean firstborn, but it really means he's preeminent above all. Preeminent. And I said, well, let's take you off your track. Took them to John chapter 12. And as we walked through John chapter 12, it walked through Jesus being rejected. Then it walked through Isaiah. Then it says, this is what Isaiah spoke when he saw his glory. Then I said, whose glory did they see? Did Isaiah see? They, they looked at me. I said, based on, I said, now, let's just use basic context clues. These are pronouns. So pronouns should be connected to the main noun that's in the passage. You can't say it's just God. It's Jesus. And I said, the question is, where did Isaiah see his glory? Then we went over to John chapter 6. I mean, Isaiah chapter 6. And he said, and, and Isaiah said, in the year... The king Uzziah died. I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe. Oh, I wish I had some help. Filled the temple. And the seraphim, I like the old King James word, and twain covered this part, you know, and twain. And, but then it went down and it says, and they were yelling a hook. In heaven. One dude said, holy. Cat over here was like, I hear you, fam. Holy. Another one over here said, holy. Holy is Yahweh. I said, Yahweh, all caps. I said, so Isaiah didn't see the essence of God or he would have died. But he saw the pre-incarnate Christ in his eternal glory. That's what he left. He left. Like they, people want to have armor bearers. Ain't nobody got armor bearers like Jesus covering them up. He flanked, chilling on his throne. His, his, I mean, cool, you know, just train of his robe, glory all over the place. And, and, and Isaiah didn't feel right in his presence. That was his pre-incarnate glory. When Jesus Christ came to earth, he left that. The train of his robe wasn't filling the temple for 33 years. <laughs> for 33 years, some of the seraphim were out of a job. Then all of a sudden, after he raised from the grave and 40 days later, God sent the cloud. He said, a cloud came down. And Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he backed up on the cloud like this. You know what I'm saying? And he was talking to them. And then, and then he said, beat me up, Father. Then the cloud began to rise up off the ground. And, 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 and the disciples was like this. Jack, that is so banging. Oh, my goodness. He on a cloud. He going up. And then some angels appeared. And said, stop looking up. Stop looking up. 
Keep looking up in your soul. But don't just be staring up in the sky. But now you go and do what he's told you to do. See, that's what he's calling us to do. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Return to him. I mean, the seraphim, we came back. They were like, he back. He back. Let's get in position. Whoop, whoop. And they got back in their position and covered the Lord Jesus Christ back up. <clears throat> and that is a sign to us that our suffering is not in vain. That our trials are not in vain. Because that's Christus exemplar. Christ, our example. Christus victor. Christ, the victorious one. And just as God gave him victory over his enemies, so will God give us victory over our enemies. But I pray that in the meantime, that we live lives that reflect the fact that he's chilling next to the Father. My man Stephen said, oh my God, I see the Son of Man standing at the, he didn't even know what to call it, a power. I can't wait to spend eternity with the one, I, I want to walk on his robe. I want to, I, I can't wait, but I pray. I'm not promising you much for now in this sermon because I want us to utilize the beauty of our king's example and his victory as a means to be encouraged. I don't care what the economy is doing. Be encouraged. I don't care what's frustrating you. Be encouraged because the, we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. Father, I pray that maybe it's somebody here that doesn't know.